0: We can turn to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. We finally made it to 2 Peter. While you turn there, um, as usual, I forgot to tell you if you do wish to give after service, there's two lock boxes on the back wall as well. You can give online at newpassion.family or on our website. for those who are joining us online as well, or right in your seat. So Second Peter chapter 1, um, it's on your outline. It'll be on the screen as well if you've got your Bible. Second Peter chapter 1, sorry, after First Peter. And uh, on the YouVersion Bible app, um, I'm in the CSB if you want to follow along word for word. And we'll be there in just a moment. But I do want to start with a question that I want you to think about, um, because oftentimes I think we forget that one day we're going to die. Um, I think we feel invincible at times until maybe we hit a certain age or whatever. Um, but I wonder if you knew that your death was imminent, like maybe you had a day left, 30 days left, whatever that looked like, what would be the most important thing for you to share with those that you care about? That you love, like if you could have one last letter to write to them, what is it that you would feel is the most important thing to share with them as your parting words, as the reflection of your life, as the anthem of your life as you were to part this? world, what is it that you would write to them? What is it that you would want to communicate to them? The Latin phrase, and I have my Latin expert professor right here who is probably going to correct me afterwards, and so I'm just going to go ahead and see if I get this right. Memento Mori. Yes! Do y'all know that it's not Imago day? Who says Imago day? Y'all know that word, Imago day? It's a mago dei, right? All right. So I, every time I say something Latin, like she teaches me the right way. So memento mori is a Latin phrase that means "remember you must die." Remember you must die. Every day of life. Think about this. Every day of your life puts you one more day closer to your death. So every day that you live, it's like a battery. Every time you use that battery, it's one more day, one more hour, one more minute that that battery is going to be drained and it's going to be dead. In the same way, every day that you live is one more day closer to your death. In fact, we see this in um, uh, Brooklyn Salisbury, December 28th, 2021. She wrote on Facebook a simple post that said, I'm starting hospice. Now she's 25 years old, And she's sharing with the world that she's starting hospice. She followed that up by saying, with much prayer, godly counsel, and medical advice, God has made the way forward clear. It's time to go home. And so over the next couple of months, maybe you followed her page, and maybe you followed her journey. She wrote on her Facebook page, Brooklyn's Journey Home, um, about her life headed towards death. She shared um, it was lighthearted, it was funny, but it was also full of faith. She wrote posts like this. If you've, ever, if you've never had a tube shoved down your throat and into your lungs, let me tell you, it's not comfortable. And you drool more than a St. Bernard over bacon. Or as I wrote on a piece of paper while on the vent, I'm drooling more than Tom drools over Jerry. On another occasion, she wrote, one pesky thing about having feeding tubes is leaking. One minute life is chill. The next, you're covered in feeding tube formula at church in the front row while your feed pump alarm is sounding in the middle of the sermon. Not ideal. Can I get an amen? Amen. And so Brian probably understands that of anyone, but she was also serious about her faith in every post, whether it was humorous or lighthearted. She ended it with pointing people to the gospel, with pointing people to um, a faith, a hope in Jesus. It was the same hope that she had, because as she shared this news, this is what she said. She said, honestly, I left my doctor's office with a giant smile on my face. My heart is overjoyed, contemplating being in the fullness of God's glory. She wrote 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. Conversely, I have been grieving with friends and family as they must say goodbye. Death is awful, but for the believer, it's just the beginning. We will start the process of taking me off medications on January 17th. I will die by the end of February. And she died this year, March 1st, 2022. So from December 28th, she knew when her medication would be taken and she knew when her life would end. She knew her death was imminent and she took the opportunity um, to use her life, not only to share a little bit of joy, but also to point people to Christ. And to point people to the hope that we have in Jesus. And so I wonder, if you knew that your death was imminent, what is it that you would share? What is it that you would write to those that you care about? Because we know that uh, that all of the apostles, the, the early elders of the church, just about every one of the apostles suffered and they died. They were persecuted. They faced persecution. And it was no different with Peter. Peter knew that his death was imminent. In fact, Christian historians tell us that he died at the hands of the Roman authorities during the rule of Emperor Nero. And so this is essentially his farewell address, and this is his farewell communication, his farewell letter to the group of churches, the Christians, that he wrote his first letter to. And so this is his final words. This is what he feels is important for them, at least in this season. And so he's going to share with his life. This is going to be the anthem of his life, the thing that they remember him by, because this is his final letter before his death. And so in this letter, he challenges these Christians. And once again, as we talked about in First Peter, um, these truths are transferable, that they um, transcend time. They're not just good for one group of Christians, although um, what they're going through might be specific and some of their experiences might be specific, but the truths that he is writing to them are transferable to every one of us. And so he takes this final farewell and he challenges these Christians and these churches to continue to grow in their faith. He places this emphasis on the reality that they, as followers of Jesus, don't need to just be content in the fact that they are saved and the fact that they have this eternity um, in heaven promised to them, but they need to continue to grow in their faith. Because the other thing that he does is he challenges the false teaching and even the false lifestyle of the corrupt teachers, the corrupt religious teachers who are trying to persuade these Christians of another way of life of another way of believing. So he's like, hey, um, you're going to see this, that you need to continue to grow, but you also need to be aware of the false teaching and the, um, really the false lifestyle of those who profess to either be Christian or to be religious, because their lifestyles don't match up with what they're teaching. And so he feels this is very important. Like, I'm going to die. You're not going to hear from me again, but this is what I want you to take with you. So he opens his letter, 2 Peter 1.1, and once again, he addresses it with his name because this is a separate letter. He wants them to know who it comes from. Simeon Peter, or um, as we know in more English terms, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can write this down. There's no hierarchy of faith among God's people. There's no hierarchy of faith among God's people. He opens this second letter by um, clarifying who his audience is. He says, this letter is to those who re- have received a faith equal to ours. Now, he's specifically writing to followers of Jesus um, who have received a faith he says. In fact, that word received is, c- could be overlooked. It could be kind of neglected um, because we kind of know what that means oftentimes. But that word received comes from the Greek word "lachanō," which means to obtain or to receive by divine allotment. So they have received this, they've obtained this faith by divine allotment. That means they didn't earn it, they didn't conjure it up somehow, that they weren't spiritual enough that all of a sudden they had this faith that they didn't work religiously enough that all of a sudden they unlock this bonus round like some of you do in video games. And it's like, oh, you got bonus coins or, oh, you've got this. Like that wasn't how they came uh, to this faith. They didn't earn it. They didn't conjure it up. Um, They didn't get it by some special knowledge of God. And that's what happened with a lot of the false teachers and the Gnostics. If you want to have this faith, then you have to have this special understanding. It was like mysticism. You have to have this special knowledge this special understanding that only we can give you. It's much like, um, you know, other religions and other practices of religion where you have to go to this one person. You have to have this one spiritual leader who can help you unlike any other person. The good news is, is in Christ we have direct access to the Father through Jesus Christ. We don't have to go through a special man. We don't have to have a special knowledge. And so this is a divine allotment of faith. God gave them this faith for their salvation each were given an allotment or a measure of faith not by their own doing and not by their own deserving but by he says his own grace and righteousness look at what romans 12:3 tells us for by the grace given to me i tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think instead think sensibly As God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. So Paul mimics this truth that Peter has shared that they have been given an allotment of faith. Peter says that God has distributed a measure of faith to each one and he warns that no one should think more highly of themselves than they ought. Because the reality is we're all enemies of God, we're all sinners, we're all before Christ, we were all destined to hell. There was not one person nor has there ever been any person who was a better sinner, enemy of God, destined to hell. Like, like, none of us were like, you know what? I know I was destined to hell. I know I was an enemy of God, according to Colossians chapter one. I know that I was a sinner. I know all these things, but I was a better sinner than you. Now in our terms, we might understand better sinner as like you were a worse sinner. Like man, that sin thing, man, I did it better than you. So when there's a hierarchy of sin, sinning, yeah, maybe you felt like you were a worse sinner, but in God's eyes, we're all enemies, we're all sinners, and we're all destined to hell. And so Paul mimics this thing, this truth, and he's saying to them, look, it's by God's grace that I'm even sharing this with you, but you shouldn't think more highly than you ought to because every one of us have been given a measure of faith who are in the faith. And so if you have come to faith in Christ, if you have been saved, then the reason you have been saved is because you were given a measure of faith. You were allotted this faith, not because of your own efforts. And so you should really not think more highly of yourself than you ought to. You shouldn't really think that you're more important than anyone else because you were just as much Destined for hell, you were just as much an enemy of God, and that's why Peter told these Christians that their faith was equal to ours. As he's writing to them, he's like, Your faith is just as equal to ours. Like, you don't need a special revelation, you don't need some special religious teacher to give you something special. Like, the measure of faith, the allotment of faith that you have received is the same, it's equal to what we have received. And so, the allotment of faith these Christians had received. For salvation was equal to the apostles, to the elders, and to that which we have received today. And that's one of those transferable truths, because the truth is today, no matter if you're a new believer, no matter if you've been a believer for a long time, whether you're struggling in something within your faith, whether you still kind of have this sin that you're wrestling with, and you look to other people and you're like, man, they are more spiritual than me. God must love them more than me. The truth is is the same today as it was then, that if you've come to faith in Jesus, you've been given a measure of faith, an allotment of faith. It's been distributed to you divinely by God, and it is equal to that of anyone else in this room. It's equal to anyone else in all of church history, that the same measure of faith has been given to you, and it is equally given to all of us. Second Peter 1-2 goes on to say, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God, and of Jesus our Lord. This is his hope for them. You can write this down. The knowledge of God increases our joy and peace of mind. The knowledge of God increases our joy and peace of mind. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He is now expressing not only to his audience, who he's talking to, and he's encouraging them that they have an equal allotment of faith, but now he's saying, may this happen in your life. This is my hope for you. This is what I desire for you. Grace in this sense is um, that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. The, The word peace here means the tranquil state of soul assured of its salvation through Christ, fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. So Peter's hope here is that grace and peace be multiplied in their life. That, that it be multiplied in these Christians' life. If there is any demonstration of this peace, this tranquil state of soul uh, assured of its salvation, not fearing God, it's that young lady, Brooklyn Salisbury. Like in, She knows that she's going to die at the end of February. She knows that there is nothing that she can do to be healed apart from some divine miracle. Like she knows the trajectory of her life. Her death is imminent and she takes this moment and she doesn't freak out. She doesn't make it about herself. She doesn't try to get pity for herself. In this moment of knowing she's gonna die in just over a month, she takes the life that has been given to her, and she's not only lighthearted and full of joy to the place that she can share humor, but she also takes that and uses it as a bridge to the gospel. She has this tranquil state. She is content and at peace she has this peace of mind and that's what peter desires for every one of us that's what he desires for these christians in this moment that that grace and peace be multiplied in their life he wants them to be confident in their salvation to grow in their joy and to delight themselves in jesus he, he doesn't want them to fear god but instead to have a peace of mind no matter what they face in life so when they're facing persecution when they're facing these corrupt teachers, that they can have a peace of mind, that they can have joy in the midst of that circumstance. And this is the same desire for every one of us. Peter would desire the same thing for every one of us, that as you grow in your knowledge of God, that you would grow in your joy and in your peace of mind, that you would grow in grace That you would grow in peace. That no matter what you face, and no matter what's going on in life, no matter what struggle, no matter what difficulty, no matter what obstacle, no matter what challenge, that you can have this peace of mind, that you can have this contentment, that you don't fear God, but there's a sweetness about your life. There's this joy about your life because it's not based on yourself, but it's based in the faith and in the work of Jesus and what he has done for every one of us. He says these things will be multiplied through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now knowledge here, remember I said one of the reasons he writes to these Christians is because he wants them to continue to grow in their faith. In just this letter alone, which is um, a very short letter, um, he uses the word knowledge 11 times. So, so this is very important to him. This understanding of knowledge and wanting them to have knowledge is very important. And for us as followers of Jesus, knowledge, when it comes to our faith and when it comes to Jesus, is very important. In fact, that word knowledge comes from the Greek word epignosis, and it means this, a precise and correct knowledge. So so he desires for Christians to have a precise and correct knowledge. It also means a, a knowledge of things, both ethical and divine. So divine is always referring back to God. And so he wants them to have a knowledge of the divine, of God. Epignosis is also from the word epignosiko, which is to become thoroughly acquainted with, to know thoroughly, to know accurately, to know well, to recognize by sight, hearing, signs, to perceive who a person is. And so, this is not just an un- a knowledge, this is a true understanding. Like, you can have a knowledge of things. Like, you can have a knowledge that, you know what, um, I know how a tire is supposed to be changed, but it doesn't mean you know how to t- change a tire. You might know that you gotta jack the car up, you might know that you gotta take the lug nuts off, but until you actually get out and change the tire, you really don't know. You don't have this intimate knowledge or understanding. You kind of have a head knowledge but I've had a head knowledge about a lot of things in life. And then I'm like, you know what? That looks easy. I can do that. I can you know, make this happen. And then all of a sudden you realize like, I didn't know it as well as I knew it. In fact, kind of had this agreement after a little while uh, on home improvement type projects. There's some things I can do. I specialize more in like electrical uh, control wire and that type stuff. Cause I had to do that for a job, but when in painting, I can paint, um, not as good as brush strokes, quality painting. Um, they're a sponsor of this sermon. Um, <laughs> but they did our walls. But um, uh, there's certain rooms they did not do. So if it doesn't look good, it was not brushstrokes um, painting. So um, anyway, uh, so back to the message. Um, but there are things like removing uh, wallpaper. So you can Google things and get a knowledge of it But until you actually try to remove the wallpaper and realize Man, that's not removing as good as I thought it was removing. Or they didn't even like finish these walls. They just put wallpaper there. Like You don't really know how to remove wallpaper. You don't really know the full uh, scope of the work. You just have this this kind of surface-level knowledge. That's not what he's talking about here. He he doesn't want these Christians to have a surface-level knowledge of Jesus or of the Father. He wants them to intimately, to have a precise and correct knowledge, See, see the reason why so many people are led astray by false teachers, because it sounds spiritual and it sounds right and it sounds truthful, but the reason they're led astray in that way is because they don't have a precise and correct knowledge. So he doesn't want them just to have a head knowledge and this surface level knowledge. He wants them to know intimately the Father. He wants them to know intimately to understand who God is. And so as he begins his farewell address to the Christians, he wants them to thoroughly know God the Father through Jesus our Lord as a pastor, I can understand this sentiment. I can understand this desire because that's my desire for the people who attend New Passion Church. That's my desire for everyone who professes a faith in Jesus Christ is that you have a thorough knowledge who God the Father is, not who Nick is, not who any of our staff is, not for um, this organization, not for this church, but Jesus Christ. That's why um, we're going through First and Second Peter. I want you through the truth of God's word to know who he is, to understand him more, to understand the truth of his word more. And so he takes this final farewell and he's like, look, if there's anything that I share with you in my final days before I face death, I want you to intimately, to precisely, to correctly know Jesus, to know the Father. He, he wants them um, he, he doesn't want them to have a knowledge about Him, but He wants them to have a precise and correct knowledge and under, understanding of who God is. He, he didn't make this letter about Himself. He didn't make it about anybody else. He's making it about their life in Christ. He wants them to thoroughly be acquainted with God to place to the place they can recognize Him, even by sight and sound, by certain signs, and even by His own character. So, so um in Scripture, Jesus said, my sheep know me. They know my voice. See, see, he wants us to know him so much that when you hear a false teacher, when you hear a false idea, even if it's innocent, even if someone's just got their doctrine off just a little bit, that you know your faith so much. You know Jesus so much that you can detect it just by hearing it. You can detect it just by seeing it and go, hold on, I, I'm not sure about that. Maybe I'm not 100% sure about that, but, but I'm going to go to God's word because I know that's going to give me the answer. I know that's going to give me the truth, but something just doesn't seem right here. Something just seems off. Something doesn't sound right. That's how much he wants you to know Christ because Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. So as we are people of faith and as we walk in faith, he wants us to have a precise and correct knowledge of God in that faith. Christians, you can write this down, Christians grow in their knowledge of God through His Word. Christians grow in their knowledge of God through His Word. John 1, 1 through 2 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. We must devote time to God's Word, both in reading and in study, as well as being taught it and discussing it, to, to be immersed in it, so that we will grow in our knowledge and understanding of God. Because God was, uh, Christ, Jesus, was the Word, and He took on flesh. And so all of Scripture points to Him. All of Scripture helps us to know and to understand Him more. Jesus is the Word in flesh. All of Scripture points to Him. All of Scripture declares His glory. And so the reason these Christians and others since have been led astray, once again, is because they did not know Jesus, or they don't know Jesus today. And the reason they don't know Jesus today is because they don't know Scripture, because they don't know His Word. Now, I don't say that as a blanket statement, because there are people who know His Word. There are people who have been discipled and raised in church, and they've been introduced to Jesus. But just because they've been raised in church and just because they've been introduced to Jesus doesn't mean that they have a precise and correct knowledge of Jesus. But then there are those who have been raised in church, and they've um, known Jesus, they've come to faith in Jesus, but maybe they took their eyes off of Jesus. Jesus. Maybe they took their eyes off of the truth of God's word, and so they've fallen in sin. They've been led astray, or they had a solid faith, and then all of a sudden now that faith has become watered down, or that faith has be- become less, and and they're starting to accept things that normally they wouldn't, or that's not a part of the traditional teaching of the scripture. Why is that? Maybe because they know God's word, but they simply disobey God's word. Maybe they want the, the praise and the pleasure of man rather than the praise and the pleasure of God. Maybe they're worried about what people will think here on earth about them, or maybe there's something lacking in their life, some void that they're trying to fill. And they think that if I just do things my way, th- then, then that void will be filled. Then that pleasure will be there, whatever it is that they're lacking. But, but there's several reasons, but the, primar- the primary reason is simply because people don't know Jesus. They know religion They know their faith. They know their denomination. They know all of these things uh, about faith and about religion, but they just don't know Jesus. And see, that's my fear for the Christian church. That's my fear for the American church. I had a pastor this morning send me a very humorous uh, text, uh, just really praying for us and um, saying he's praying that we, you know, uh, experienced the presence of God today, but he also shared one of the petty reasons someone left their church. And it's just, you have to laugh about it. And you wonder why, because people know religion, people know church, but they don't know Jesus. Like, like if we understood what people dealt with, that's why we try to keep persecuted church and persecuted Christians in front of you. Because if we understood that oftentimes what Christians actually endure and deal with, and how they have to meet, and how they have to worship. Like, we would almost become disgusted about the way we do church, because this is just a way of church, but it's not Christianity. It's not our faith. It's, a, it's an opportunity for us to be able to worship in this way. It's a, it's a pleasure to be able to worship in this way, but this isn't Christianity. And my biggest fear is that there are people who sit in the seats of churches all across America, and they've been raised in church with all the terminology and with all the understanding of the right words and the right answers in Sunday school or at VBS, and they know all the answers, but they don't know Jesus. And that's my biggest fear. And that's why we started a church called New Passion Church is because I grew up in an environment where we knew all the right answers and we knew what we were supposed to do and not supposed to do, but no one had a passion for Jesus. What they they grew up in was a fear to not get things wrong. Or, or a fear that I've got to do everything right so that God will be pleased with me. But at the end of the day, it was all about me and what I could do and what I didn't do. And is God going to be okay with me? Because this week I got through the week without doing this sin or without doing this thing. And so I know religion and I know the weight of religion, but I don't know Jesus. I, I don't know him intimately and I don't know him personally. And, and I, I fear and I wonder Week to week, how many people come into our church and to churches all around America, and that's their story? They know the answers. They know, I got to say this prayer. uh, Okay, I'll be baptized. But at the end of the day, they said a prayer. They say all the right words. They sing the songs, but they really don't know Jesus. They really don't know Him intimately. They really don't know Him personally. And as we see that faith, comes from God. It's it's allotted. It is a measure of faith given to us by Him. And so that's why we look and we go, how can someone profess to be a Christian and act this way and live this way? Because their faith has to be given to them. That measure of faith has to be given to them. And there's a lot of people who don't have faith, but they know faith. They know about faith. They know the terms of faith. They know that I was supposed to say this prayer, but they, they, they said that prayer maybe because they feared going to hell, not because they wanted Jesus. I love what John Piper says. He says, um, would heaven essentially be heaven? Like, would you want heaven if you could have all the streets of gold? You could have the, the no more tears. You could have the perfect life, but God wasn't there. Jesus wasn't there. Like, would you still take heaven? would you still want the streets of gold? Would you still want the, the pearly gates? Would you still want the, the no pain, the, 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 the no sickness? Like, would you still want heaven? See, because I think that's what we have turned Christianity in. I want Jesus because of what he can do for me. I want Jesus because of what, how he can benefit me. We're consumers. We're selfish. We're self-centered. And I wonder how many people in our churches don't truly know God. They know about God. They Googled. They know all the right answers, but they've not tried to strip the wallpaper off yet. They've not tried to really change the tire. It's not really become real to them. I mimic Peter's desire in the fact that I desire that you know you have a correct understanding and knowledge of Jesus. We distinguish truth from error by growing in our knowledge of God. Then we can recognize that truth by sight, by certain signs, by sound, by character. We can can distinguish that. Verse 3 and 4 goes on and says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. By these, He has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. You can write this down, God gifts Christians with every resource necessary to live a godly life. God gifts Christians every resource necessary to live a godly life, Next week he's going to go into a list of things. This week is really just setting that up and setting up the the, the meteor things, and and this is just kind of leading us into that. But, but we'll see some of this, but he gifts Christians with every resource necessary to live a godly life. It would be very dif- difficult, if not impossible, for me to give you a butter knife, send you to California, send you into the, the forest with the um, great redwood trees, and tell you to take that butter knife and to cut that tree down. Not only if you could get that knife to work, you would probably lack the strength and the stamina to even get it to work correctly, to take a huge redwood and to cut it down with a butter knife. Why? Because it's the wrong tool. It's not only the wrong tool, you just don't have the ability, the strength to make it work properly. It would be a foolish endeavor. But in the same way, it would be a foolish endeavor for you to even believe that you could live a godly life under your own strength under your own ability, under your own um, conjuring up faith even, your own understanding of things. The good news is God doesn't expect that of you. He doesn't send you into the redwood forest with a butter knife and say, hey, I, I want you to go cut this tree down. He doesn't save us and transform us and send us out in life and say, hey, good news, I saved you, I did the work on the front end, but now it's all up to you on the back end. Know that he who began the good work will complete it. The same God who saved you is the same God who sanctifies you. The same God who um, gave you the power unto salvation through the gospel is the same God who gives you the power unto transformation to live the Christian life. He doesn't send you into the forest with a butter knife and say, good luck. I hope you can survive. I hope you can make it happen and make you make it work. He resources us. He gives us everything we need to live a godly life. That's why it's not acceptable for us as followers of Jesus to even utter the words, I can't do it. Well, he calls us to purity. I can't do it. He calls us to find our identity in him. I can't do it. He calls us to live in in a generous way. I can't do that. There is no reason and no excuse for us to even utter those words, to even have that attitude, because Scripture tells us that He has given us everything necessary to live a godly life. It even says that we share in the divine nature. Now, none of us are divine, there are people who profess to be Christian teachers who will tell, t- essentially teach you that you are a little God. There, there are, And I, I was going to play some clips. I didn't get them. I, it would upset some of y'all because some of y'all post their sermons and stuff online, but it is what it is. Pastors saying, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am essentially God because I'm in Christ. That's not what that means. You are not a little God you cannot declare certain things just because you are in Christ and you have his nature in you like that doesn't make you god you are you it says that you share in the divine nature what that means is not only do you have the holy spirit living in you to empower you to help you he lives in you but also you've been adopted as a son and as a daughter. Therefore, you have access to every resource needed to live a godly life. You have the father who owns all things. You have the father who gives the power. You have the father who gives the life. Like you have the ability to live the life that he calls you to live. So there is no excuse in the Christian faith to say, I can't do that. You're right. You can't do that, but you're not called to do it on your own. You're called to, through the divine power that has been given to you, walk out this life, to yield yourself to the Holy Spirit, to walk out this life. And so that's why it's just as foolish of an endeavor for us to live a godly life in our own strength, in our own ability. That's why we need God's Word. That's why we need to know Scripture. That's why we need to devote ourselves to prayer. That's why we need to know Christ and His ways so we need to grow as peter is writing this letter continually in our faith see that's the difference between following jesus and other religions uh, other religions place the responsibility on you puts the responsibility on if you can knock on the doors enough. If you can go out, if you can hold up the five pillars of faith, if you can hold up the 13 principles of our religion, if you can do this, then God might bless you in this way. Then God might give you a measure of faith. Then God might give you the desires of your heart. If you can do this and puts all the weight on you. But in Christianity, Jesus placed all the weight on himself. He took the cross. He lived the perfect life. And then once he saves us because of what he did, his finished work on the cross, he didn't leave us to figure it out on our our own. He says, I'm going to send you another, one who will help you. And that is the Holy Spirit. And so that's the difference in our faith and other faiths. That's why other people say um, more than one road can lead to God, or they're all the same. No, they're not. You get wrapped up in another religion, you're going to find yourself working, laboring, uh, putting forth effort that you can't put in order to try to please God, when God says it's finished. Jesus declared it was finished. He finished the work. And he who finished the work, he who started the work, will finish it in your life. Just the same. And so that does mean that you can live a God-honoring life, avoiding the things that grieve God and destroy your soul, because he's given you every resource to do it. You're not god but you have God to help you. And so today, if that's been your heartbeat, if that's been your desire, my challenge for you today would be to examine your heart. Is it that you can't or is it that you don't want to? See, that's the difference. It's not that you can't because growing up, if I told my parents I couldn't clean my room, it's not that I couldn't. It's that I didn't want to. It's that I didn't want to do what they wanted me to do. It's not that you can't live pure, you don't want to live pure. It's not that you can't live generous, it's, you don't want to live generous. It's not that you can't forgive that person, it's you don't want to forgive that person. Because you're alive today, what you do today matters. It matters not only in the life of other people that you share life with, but it matters for eternity. Every day that God gives you breath and gives you life, it matters. Every minute of it, every second of it, every day, once again, of life places you one more day towards death. One more day that your life is no more. My challenge to you today is to be intentional about growing in your knowledge of Jesus and through Jesus, your knowledge of God, because he who knows Jesus, will know the Father. He who saw Christ had seen the Father, but also to utilize every resource afforded to you and given to you by Christ through the Holy Spirit to live a godly life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that in Christ we have received every spiritual blessing, that we have received the divine power We have been given a measure of faith. We have been given everything that we need to live a godly life. I thank you that you have not called us to something that you did not equip us to. That that you have not called us to something and then sit back and laugh at us as we strive towards it and as we work towards it in our feebleness and in our inability. But you are a loving God and you care for us. And you not only saved us, but you have now equipped us to live a life that will honor you and glorify you. And so my prayer, Father, is twofold today. One, that if there is someone here that does not know you, they do not know Jesus, they know about him, they know about religious terms, they know about religion, they know about church, but they don't know Jesus, that they will not leave here today without placing their faith and trust and hope in you. I pray Father if they lack faith that you would give it to them. I pray that you would impart it to them, that you would distribute it to them equally as you did the apostles and the elders and the first century church and as you have done so many that are here in this auditorium, those who are joining us online. If there's anyone who is lacking faith that you would give it to them so that they might place it in Christ and in Christ alone for their salvation. That they would not leave here today without doing so. And then, Father, I pray for those who might be living in rebellion, who might know the truth, but, Father, they are not walking in the truth. They're declaring they can't do something that you have fully equipped them to do, that you would change their want to, that you would change their desire, that they would no longer walk in disobedience, but today would be the day that they decide for themselves that they're going to walk in obedience, that they're going to put the sin aside, that they're going to put the desires aside and that they are going to look to Christ and keep their eyes on him and walk in godliness. If there's anything else, Father, that we need to deal with today through the truth of your word, I pray that you would speak and I pray that we would respond. Before we close this prayer, I do want to let you know that where you sit The Bible tells us, with the heart man believes unto righteousness. That means you believe that Christ lived the perfect life that you could not live. That he went to the cross to take your place. And that he desires to be your Lord and your king, your friend, your savior. He desires to save you. And so the Bible says, with the heart we believe that. And with the mouth confession is made. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As we close out this prayer, right where you sit, you can call on the name of the Lord and He will save you. As we close out in this last song, you can call on the name of the Lord and He will save you. And if you do so, fill out a connect card. Let us know so we can walk with you. Father, I pray that you continue to work in these hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.